0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Style Guides podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to all things style guide and pattern library related. My name is Brad Frost.
1: I'm Anna Debenham.
0: And today we're super excited to talk with Nathan Curtis. Nathan, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Excellent. Yeah, great. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Anna's had a long week. I, I had think. Long week. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Nathan, uh, you want to just sort of kick off, uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. What uh, you know, sort of where you're working and what what you do, what you specialize in.
2: Sure, my name's Nathan Curtis. I have been with Eight Shapes, we're a user experience design firm in Washington D.C. I uh, started with my partner Dan Brown about nine years ago now. And we have a lot of clients across the country, big technology companies and small organizations. And we tend to find ourselves in environments where style guides, libraries, design systems have a strong role to play in the production of sometimes designs at large scales. So we have a competency we've built up within our uh, design firm to to do that and help our our clients really understand what libraries are and, and ultimately build and sustain them themselves. That's, a, that's excellent. So so, how would you define style guide?
0: <laughs>
2: well, that, that's interesting because I think style guide's a uh, potentially dangerously dated term, depending on what people expect out of that term. Uh, you know, circa 2002, everyone would say it's a PDF, it's about 50 to 100 pages long, and it covers your visual language of color and type and photography and iconography and all those core attributes of, of a design language. Uh, it's certainly grown today. Um, a lot of our work over the last five years or so is delivering all of our work in code. We tend to codify those styles into the architecture code that we build responsive sites with. And so style guide now means some sort of reference to understand all of the pieces, parts, not just the visual language, but also sometimes all the core elements, the bigger, chunkier components, all the page types, the layout engine, the grid system. And sometimes it starts to overlap with other things, which is where it gets even more dangerous. (laughs) Style guide to a lot of people means content style guide, editorial tone and voice and punctuation lists and and, and Mm -hmm. word lists and so on. And so part of uh, demystifying design libraries and, and style guides is helping people describe all the pieces or parts of what they're really expecting from it and making sure that that they can communicate that to their audience because everybody's style guide seems to be a bit different.
1: What do do yours include?
2: Uh, What do ours include? Sometimes some remix of those things plus lots of other stuff. Uh, It could be that a style guide ends up including a lot of coding style and practices. You could think of the accessibility approaches or even whether a development team uses... uh, double spaces or tab stops in their code, which is a big argument among developers at the beginning of projects. (laughs) No. (laughs) Of course not. Um, The other things that it it often tends to bleed into beyond the content style is also all the, the tools and the toolkits and how you use them. Some folks will embed things like icon libraries or Photoshop swatches or... Um, you know, some sort of pattern library they use with their own design tool for wireframing or comps. And those make their way as a consequential downloads piece of the style guide. Because when designers come and they want to get started with some sort of visual system or some sort of library, the downloads link is actually in in the user research we've done on style guides. One of the things they always look for downloads globally and downloads in each of the key sections like a color page.
0: That's, that's excellent. That's really insightful. And you say that you guys have done user research with style guides, huh? Oh,
2: we geek out on this stuff. So the relationships we've had with some of our clients, like, uh, we've had a long relationship with Cisco. We learned a lot of how to set these things up from sun, bless their, or sort of rest in peace um, with them. But, uh, We've had engagements that tend to last years, and it's not full-time. Sometimes we're just consulting over time to help them curate their library, but we also want to assess whether or not it's working, because if it's just three people working together, you look across the cube and you ask them, does it have what they need? But sometimes we work with organizations that have over 100 designers. And so to make sure it's hitting the nail on the head, we'll do user research and We'll test things like this and we'll learn things like on the color page of a style guide. Show me the damn values is what the designers say. Tell me what the hex code is or the RGB value or what the range of tints I'm allowed to use or mm. the color contrast combinations that I'm allowed to employ. Or honestly, we create a big grid and it has big X's on all the color contrast combinations you're not supposed to do. <laughs> and that, that actually shows people in a visual way because lots of these people still... Self-proclaim, I'm a visual learner, not surprisingly, yep. is they'll, they'll see the big X on the moderate gray, on the slightly moderate gray background, and they'll be like, oh, okay, I can't be that subtle with my grays. Oh, when you do accessibility testing, you realize that so many combinations of those colors aren't good. But the user research also showed us other interesting things, too, like designers don't want to frickin read the stuff at the top of the color page. They don't care that you're going to exclaim to them that your color palette is bold, vibrant and highly saturated because that is indistinguishable from probably half of the other style guides that are out there in the industry. They just want to get hmm. to the meat of it. And so that that's a couple of the sensitizing things that, that, that I've learned over time is Don't concentrate so much on the words that don't matter. Instead, spend the time building the visual stories or the the code and picture pairings or even the um, demonstrators or the generators. Like uh, another client of ours had a set of colors within this annual report that they were creating. And it was about eight different sections. They each got a color, but then they all use these different data visualization uh, components. And so what did we do? We created a, essentially a, a demonstrator where you clicked each of the different sections and you saw the color applied. It's really easy. It's just swapping on a CSS value in terms of how we built it. But at the same time, it was really powerful for people that didn't work on that section to come in, see how the color was used, and then be able to make good judgments about how to apply color in their site, part of the site too. Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) Holy smokes.
1: Is that live anywhere?
2: Uh, If you get uh, access to their network, sure. But no, most of the stuff that we do, that's that's a whole different conversation because most of the style guides we create are password protected. And the instinct for companies is to put them on our network. Uh, And it's got to be internal. It's got to be accessible to our dev team and so on. But they miss opportunities with that. First off, I'm a vendor I'm or a partner, if you want to call it that, with a lot of these companies. And when you start to place these kinds of assets behind those kinds of constraints, many teams either take an egregiously long time to get access to them or they never get access to them. Mm-hmm. And what this style guide is, is a way for them to understand how you work and how to make good decisions in your design process. And if you use a lot of vendors, it's got to be accessible outside the firewall. The other thing that I learned is with Sun... Um, in the late 2000s, they had a component library where if you went to sun.com slash web design, everybody in the world sees it. It's a complete inventory of every bit of HTML and CSS that anybody that gets on their train to produce stuff would use. And they just shared it with everybody. And the reason was, we don't want to spend all of our time, which means all of our money, getting people access to something silly that they can look in our source code and derive anyway. Right. Yeah. Right. And and so that has, I think, been coupled with some of the more recent activity I've seen, not just with style guides like you guys create, but also companies like IBM, material design is an obvious yep. example, but all of these companies that are now using it not as something they need to hide, and not share, but they're using it as a testament to what their belief system is. And also a, an indicator of the quality of their organization. They're essentially using it as a recruiting tool.
1: Yeah, and Gina Bolton, we interviewed her, and she said that she actually joined Salesforce after seeing their style guide. I mean, I, I'm sure that wasn't the only reason, but it was it was a good right. enough reason. <laughs>
0: right? What, yeah. Whatever you have, like one of the best like SaaS people in the world join your team because they did your <laughs> style guide. Like that's, yeah. that's 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 pretty good. But and, and I'd say like I, I love what you're saying about just how. That visibility just impacts. Well, one just cuts down on the bureaucracy of having to go through exactly. a bunch of sort of tech crap just to get something that's that's pretty benign in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. Uh, but but also, it's uh, you know, I see it as by putting it out there in the in the in the wild, it's like you know, it it sort of holds your feet under the fire to to be like, look, this thing needs to be true, this thing needs to be accurate. It can't be some. Dead weight, sort of, you know, thing that that's rotting off in the corner somewhere. Keeps you, you know, honest. We, yeah, exactly, and 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 really makes people accountable for for maintaining
2: this thing in the long run, right? Oh, there, there's without question that it puts a lot more pressure on folks to recognize the investment, and that's a real challenge. You know, we're as a vendor, we're trying to sell our services so we can help the clients that we work with. But one of the toughest things that I find to help convince them is. You're not just building some artifact that it's not a deliverable. Mm -hmm. What you're building is a almost a way of life of your team. And that can be scary to them because then they say, oh, okay, so this is a three year investment. How much do I need to spend per month or quarter to keep this thing alive? And the answer is it's not zero. And so let's talk about the things that are important to you that you need to invest in or that you're most willing to invest in. Um, The other thing is, is that it starts to provoke questions of change because like deliverables, they're never really done. They just stop getting worked (laughs) on. And so when you make it obvious to them that, okay, you might have a big launch you're driving towards, you might have a bevy of different products that are going to utilize it, that are all trying to sync their launches around this particular point in time. But as these products do their work, you're going to learn more, more products are going to crop up. And over the subsequent quarters or years, this thing is going to get applied in different ways one of the challenges we found with a client we've worked with for about five years now is we created a design system in 2012. And we said, you should probably make this sucker responsive as a web-based experience. They didn't. And then they realized in 2013 that they needed to, and that corresponded to an internal rebranding of the company. (laughs) And then Oh wait, we built one, and then they rebranded the company again in two thousand fourteen, and then they had two concurrent design systems at play. They actually have two different code repositories, and now there's a question of: Are you going to use A? or Are you going to use B? And, oh jeez. <laughs> but but there's also a historical precedent that you need to that we're now talking with them about is. When does C happen? Because based on the rate you've got now, it's going to happen in three to six months. And are you going to have a D? And so now it's really sort of at another level of magnitude where we're talking about how resilient does this library be? How does this library need to be? How resilient does the code need to be to be able to handle that change? Fortunately, these these folks have been investing for years and that's a, but that's still a scary proposition for the the team that's just starting out and thinking about should we build a library on our own and how resilient to change will this need to be over time
0: wow <laughs> that is a pretty pretty serious sounding stuff as far as like large organizations going through well like and, and that is, is it, like establishing these systems like can help sort of facilitate those those giant redesigns right oh there's like, no right? doubt done, yeah done properly, I suppose.
2: But but other so, teams temp- temper their expectations. I would say the team we worked with last fall, um, they didn't want that. They had 100 designers, each moving 100 miles an hour, creating native apps and creating all sorts of different web-based experiences, sites and applications and so on. What they needed was just, honestly, a style guide. They needed a lot. what they called a library site because they wanted to integrate con- concerns of content and code and other things sort of on the periphery But the sucker at its core is just a documentation of the visual language. And that's, for them, it was good enough. For me, I was seeing all this opportunity to build all these sophisticated things. But for them, they were like, this is just what we need. And I've talked to them since, and they're like, I just shared how to use color and type and iconography with Team 13. They got it. They're going to use it. Big win. Thanks for the value.
1: Was there any (laughs) apprehension about um, it being restrictive at all?
2: Um, you mean, does is it perceived as a governing constraint that limits innovation kind yeah. of thing?
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. This team that I'm talking about that achieved just a visual language style guide last fall, they have a big sign in their office, one of their office spaces that says disrupt. And ironically, I was the <laughs> consultant sitting underneath these bright lights of the sign saying disrupt saying, I'm the standards guy coming in to help govern you. Um, so it it changes the conversation because, um, that there were members of that organization that were, uh, let's say immune to the term governance. They wanted to almost eradicate it from their organization. I can see why, because they were, they're at a period of rapid growth, but they needed something to bring people together. How do they do that? And so it becomes a delicate conversation between them. People change job titles. Um, people think about their roles differently and how they're going to collaborate and, project out central things to everybody else. But this team, like material design, um, John. Wiley, I had the opportunity uh, through that project to talk with John Wiley from Google, and he, I, the first thing out of his mouth was, this thing can't really happen that pervasively and that strongly without having top-down support for it. And so while you can say governance is a bad word or standards is a bad word, there's still, in the organization I worked with and within Google, a strong directive from the top of we need to find a way to, to establish that directing north star of what we're doing and follow that. It might not go deep and create all the grids for you and make all the components you have to use, but we at least have to agree on the, the yellow, blue, and green that we're going to use in our color palette. Right, guys? Yeah. Kind of yeah.
0: And and I do, I think and and this is certainly true to, you know, a lot a lot of the guests that we've spoken with. There there is a spectrum between the just some basic rules of the road, you know, here's yeah, here's what colors you use, here's what colors you avoid, here's you know, don't stretch the logo stuff <laughs> like basic one oh one level stuff that's more just there as like suggestions, best practices. But then there's there's on the other end of the spectrum is like this style guide is our our yeah is is our moment of truth like th- this is the source of truth and everything goes through here and if you're not and if you're not doing it uh, this way, then it's just not going to make it onto the site or whatever. Uh, so, so, and and I think that there is there's a lot of room for, and, de- and I'm sure it depends on the organization of like, like sort of how loose or how tight you want to manage that stuff. I guess over time,
2: I think it, 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 you're absolutely right. And I, on the far end or the latter end of the spectrum that you described, where the governance is fairly strict, the folks on that end that are the most successful are the ones that take the mindset of being a facilitator prepared for change rather than a director that expects to be static or expects that what they've already done is good enough. Um, Sun worked in part because they had a lever of a awesome comp- and deep Uh, Comprehensive component library that if you're a new team that you want to build a product or a section of the site, you had eighty to ninety percent of what you needed. But they also built into the process a central point of contact who was basically the code overlord. We called him the overlord at times as a joke, (laughs) but you know that won't go to his head. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah, if if you met him, you you would laugh. But (laughs) at the same at same time, he was also very fast. He was very responsive, and he was, through the way that the the library was communicating itself and expressing its ability to change, it fostered that um, perception of openness and and evolution that made it a lot more palatable to new product owners to come in and say, oh, I see this library, but oh, wow, look at all the updates that they continue to churn out. I can get on that train because that train's going to continue to support me. It's it's vibrant and, and evolving.
1: So how would you recommend people handle exceptions? So say um, you're working with a company and they've got a style guide, but they want to do something a bit crazy. They want to have like a Merck site, which has completely different styles. Would you create them a second style guide or would you make it part of the same style guide?
2: It depends. I I think that more often than not, as a librarian of these design libraries, (laughs) it's harder to handle an increasing number of exceptions and document all of them. Um, Really, the the style guide is in a sense documentation of all the decisions that you've made. But in effect, there's another team making a bunch of other decisions that you can neither control or honestly, most of the time, keep up with. And so what I do in the case of wild exceptions is figure out a, a way to try and consult with them to help them understand what the what is more malleable more flexible versus what is more strict and try and keep them if necessary uh closer to the core uh as you can the other thing that Sometimes exceptions provide you as an opportunity. Um, those exceptions sometimes can provide you an opportunity to get them to invest in expanding your thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you want to use this design system, but you what it doesn't give you 30% of what you need, will you pay for it? And do you anticipate continuing to uh, pay for a little bit of the maintenance? Great. Let's talk about that. The other thing is... They sometimes become the exceptions that you highlight on your own side of what not to do. Um, <laughs> so uh, like I said, with a lot of the style guides I've created, the most effective ones are ones filled with pictures and examples. And those examples on like material design site are clearly red and green, uh, which is very simple to understand. Do this. Don't do that. Uh, but there are also things that are a little bit uh Gosh, what's the halfway color between red and green? I don't know, but there's somewhere in the middle uh, the orange and yellow examples of what you could probably do but you need to think about. And so helping people understand not just what parts of the style guide they can use, but where, how strict and flexible each of those pieces are is an important part.
0: Yeah, and I think, uh, and I actually just wrote a, a blog post on the topic because uh, of, of sort of, you know, which which patterns are the ones that need to be followed to a T, right? There's, there's really not a lot of wiggle room with them. And, uh, uh, to borrow a phrase that, uh, I, I've, Grown to love uh, working with Josh Clark. He's a he calls it doing business, and it's like there's right. doing business typography, and there's doing business patterns, right? There's sort of like more sort of utilitarian aspects of an interface, right? If you're if you're an e-commerce shop, uh, you're gonna have you know your checkout form, your your account update stuff, like those are all sort of very utility sort of driven things, and so as a result, maybe those components that comprise that experience are a little more Rigid uh, when it comes to maintaining a style guide for him, but then there's these whole areas that might be like full of all sort of all sorts of editorial content and stuff that's getting swapped out. And here's the spring sale, and here's Christmas sale, you know, like more sort of you know blank slate, do anything you want sort of things, right? So it's about sort of building that flexibility into the system. Right, instead of just being like the whole thing, it's like you need to follow this, or you're fired, or you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's not like a black and white sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's like it's just knowing where you have that flexibility, and so it sounds like you the way that you're communicating that is through these like examples and the sort of language around
2: a, a pattern is that true i, I think so and it, it's funny your uh, or your fired quote reminds me of it may be many standards uh polices dreams for that to happen but that's the nightmare that <laughs> everybody else fears there's really no consequence like that that ends up really happening except if you go to the vp and you start a fight um but th- i think there's certainly a range and in times, I've seen that the more a team centrally maintains some of those global components, think of it as the wrapper of the site, the, the header, the footer, the, the main menuing or primary navigation and, and the way the grid system works, a lot of times with a web-based experience that is more statically published um, content, that, that is non-negotiable. You're going to have to have a much more central notion of how the information architecture is manifested, and that's often via the navigation like that. Um, But on the flip side, a lot of these things are just all remixed in the content space, and and that's okay. So certainly the the degree of of adherence is something that you also embed. And I I remember in the Yahoo Pattern Library in the mid to late 2000s, they had a a blog post, I think, or a post on boxes and arrows that talked about their uh, maturity scale. And so that's another thing that some teams use, and it's always debatable what the levels of that scale are, but... Is this thing sort of being piloted? Is it a working example? Is it a best practice? Is it the Yahoo way in their case? And there are certain quantifiable things that you can do that you might not even need to expose to your uh, makers using your system of has it been through user research? How many products is it being used on? How old is it? Have we really proven it? Um, That's one thing uh, that, that people will do a lot is to try and ascribe some sort of authority to them. One other really interesting thing I saw a team do, we, or actually I came up with the idea because I saw this large organization with 100 plus designers who had this user research practice with, that was serving all of these different design teams with you know five researchers that were conducting three to five research uh, events a week, hitting all of their different products. And so when you have a, something at that scale, I saw an opportunity to say, you guys are producing user research reports. Uh, Those reports tend to have some sort of executive summary that also lists findings on that sort of cover page There's sort of a one-sheeter that sensitizes to what happened in that. I said, that's all very well-structured content. And each of those findings, you can kind of tag with articles in your style guide. Wow, here's three color findings. Here's two form-based findings. Ah. Uh, and, And so imagine that now you've got this production shop producing user research reports, what if that was a second tab on the color page where the first tab is just guidelines or what have you? And then you could connect these research reports because it's managed content, basically upload a report, type in the findings, tag them with labels. Suddenly, these two things happening at an enterprise level, user research and uh, essentially design libraries or design standards, are now communicating through a single channel to where designers can look and see, Now I see where those choices around color have substantive evidence on why I should do it. Instead, it's not some arbitrary choice of some standardista that isn't even on a design project and just using a color wheel. There's a lot of rigor that's gone into this. And so connecting those two pieces and having that evidence ended up being a very powerful, unanticipated win when we launched that library site. That's that's
0: fascinating. I think the most fascinating part about that is it just sort of shows... How, whenever you create this watering hole for the organization, it gives you a, a platform that you can, yeah, iterate upon and build upon. And actually, you know, the more eyeballs you have on it, uh, the more useful it, it, it becomes, and the more the more you know, knowledge you can share, sort of under that under that roof, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, there's no question. I love that metaphor of watering hole because the most successful libraries I've seen conflate a lot of the different concerns or uh legs of the stool so to speak of what impacts design you've got content concerns and ia or structure concerns and visual concerns and behavioral and and code concerns oftentimes if you can get all of those different parts of the story into a single picture where you see the component and the code right next to it to Cut and paste it from, but also some of the other commentary from those different perspectives. It ends up creating a blended story, but it's also really hard to author um, and get those different influences into a single story like that. It takes work, it takes time. It takes mm-hmm. maybe a facilitator of a library, or you could call them the librarian, having conversations with all of those people and being fairly fluidly involved. One of the organizations I worked with um, ended up ascribing authority in a larger org for each of those legs of the stool, where they had somebody that from an enterprise-wide level was the person that everybody went to to ask questions of and give authority to the visual choices, the color and the type and so on. Another person, behaviors and interactions. That person happened to be a, a design leader in their native space where animation and gestures and transitions played a key part in how the thing worked. And so bias for larger orgs, Sometimes ascribing authority, even temporarily, like there's a term of service maybe, um, to a, a smaller set of uh, individuals tending to be leaders in the org can help centralize that, but also still give the impression that there, there's representation within the projects and products that are being built, and it's not some separate thing where decisions are being being made without the context of, of what's emerging in their ecosystem. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And I think that that, if those people are in that role, right, they're sort of already sort of in a leadership role. And so, like, if you were to hire a new visual designer, well, you'd want that new designer to talk to the creative director and she's going to show her the ropes, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean, And, and, and all of that. So, of course, that makes sense to just sort of, scale that person's knowledge and put it into, th- yeah, throw it on the pile, right? I, I, throw, throw it onto the style guide and make sure that that, that person, yeah, like that, that creative director, you know, her her vision and, and all of those sort of ideals and values and all that stuff sort of make it into the global sort of
2: language. It also, I think, helps with the legitimacy ascribed to the, that enterprise sort of central design library function because some of those leaders, or even they don't have to be designated leaders of visual design or something like that. Right, right. But there is representation across a range of different dimensions, different product lines, different design disciplines. And by spreading that around effectively the the function of the library becomes a facilitating one not an uh an owning one the authority right. r- rests with the people so to speak
0: right right and that's and that's going to do nothing but sort of encourage collaboration and get people sort of well yeah like like you were just saying sort of exposed to those other disciplines thinking so that, you know, even if you are a developer, you're thinking about the accessibility and usability uh, in in visual and content decisions around, say, a carousel or something like that.
2: Exactly. Oh, uh, but carousels, every library has to have them. Every product owner wants them. And they are the worst Performing component in the world, so as, <laughs> you don't, you as don't facility, to tell me. <laughs> yeah, if it, it's, we find this with like every client. It's like okay, we're starting to build up this library. We're building our old code. We're essentially going through our list. We have a big queue, or you think of like a sprint backlog of all the different items that go in the library, all the different articles we want to write, or code snippets we want to create carousel always finds its way down the list when we do our prioritization and then it makes its way up the list based on the demand of of whatever products are using it so we do our best to evangelize the negative impacts of carousels but it doesn't always work yep should and i star use i should... wouldn't
1: be complete with that one
2: <laughs> exactly yeah,
0: exactly it's like something's missing here what could it yeah. be uh-huh.
1: <laughs> it's a carousel full of qr codes
0: <laughs> oh no that was my nightmare <laughs> Oh geez, well, hey Nathan, I think that we're just about out of time, but uh, this has been just tremendously insightful. I think that uh, your perspective is is one that's really unique. You know, just you've sounds like you've had a wealth of experience working with all sorts of different organizations, and so you having that bird's eye view of sort of what those sort of common patterns across different style guides and stuff have been, uh, you know, really really helpful. So so thanks for sharing that.
2: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Excellent.
0: So, all right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening in, and, uh, yeah, hope to see you again. Thanks.